I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I have developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today we'll be looking at Acts chapters 7 and 8. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen gets caught preaching the gospel. Chapter 7, verse 1. Then said the high priest, Are these things so? And he said, Men, brethren, and fathers, hearken. The God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran. And he said unto him, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred, and come into the land which I shall show thee. Then came he out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from thence, when his father was dead, he removed him into this land, wherein ye now dwell. And he gave him none inheritance in it, no, not so much as to set his foot on. Yet he promised that he would give it to him for a possession, and to his seed after him, when as yet he had no child. And God spake on this wise, that his seed should sojourn in a strange land, and that they should bring them into bondage, and entreat them evil for a hundred years. And the nation to whom they shall be in bondage will I judge, said God, and after that shall they come forth and serve me in this place." And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. So Abraham begat Isaac and circumcised him the eighth day. And Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, moved with envy, sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him. And delivered him out of all his afflictions, and gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and made him governor over Egypt and all his house." Now there came a dearth over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was corn in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. And at the second time, Joseph was made known to his brethren, and Joseph's kindred was made known unto Pharaoh. Then sent Joseph and called his father Jacob to him, and all his kindred threescore and fifteen souls." So Jacob went down into Egypt and died, he and our fathers, and were carried over into Shechem and laid in the sepulcher that Abraham bought for a sum of money, Hamer, the father of Shechem. But when the time of the promise drew nigh, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt, till another king arose, which knew not Joseph. The same dealt subtly with our kindred, and evil entreated our fathers, so they cast out their young children to the end that they might not live. In which time Moses was born and was exceeding fair and nursed up in his father's house three months. And when he was cast out, Pharaoh's daughter took him up and nourished him for her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and in deeds. And when he was full forty years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel." And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended him and avenged him that was oppressed and smote the Egyptian. For he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them, but they understood not. 
And the next day he showed himself unto them as they strove, and would have set them at one again, saying, Sirs, ye are brethren, why do ye wrong one to another? But he that did his neighbor wrong thrust him away, saying, Who made thee a ruler and judge over us? Wilt thou kill me as thou didst the Egyptian yesterday? Then fled Moses at this saying, and was a stranger in the land of Midian, where he begat two sons. And when forty years were expired, there appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai an angel of the Lord in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he wondered at the sight. And as he drew near to behold, the voice of the Lord came unto him, saying, I am the God of thy fathers, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses trembled and durst not behold. Then said the Lord to him, Put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place where thou standest is holy ground. I have seen, I have seen the affliction of my people which is in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning, and am come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send thee into Egypt. This Moses, whom they refused, saying, Who made thee a ruler and a judge? The same did God send to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel which appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out after that he had showed wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness forty years. This is that Moses which said unto the children of Israel, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren, like unto me, him shall ye hear. This is he that was in the church in the wilderness with the angel which spake to him in the Mount Sinai, and with our fathers who received the lively oracles to give unto us, to whom our fathers would not obey, but thrust him from heaven, and in their hearts turned back again into Egypt, saying unto Aaron, Make us gods to go before us, for as for this Moses which brought us out of the land of Egypt, we will not what is become of him. And they made a calf in those days, and offered sacrifice unto the idol, and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets, O ye house of Israel, have ye offered to me slain beasts and sacrifices by the space of forty years in the wilderness? Yea, ye took up the tabernacle of Moloch, and the star of your god Rimphan, figures which he made to worship them, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness, as he had appointed, speaking unto Moses that he should make it according to the fashion that he had seen, which also our fathers that came after brought in with Jesus into the possession of the Gentiles, whom God drave out before the face of our fathers unto the days of David." who found favor before God and desired to find a tabernacle for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him an house. Howbeit the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as saith the prophet, Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What house will you build me, saith the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Hath not my hand made all these things? Well, let's interrupt this message right now to get a little bit of perspective on these first 50 verses. We first hear Stephen's name in Acts chapter 6, verse 5, when he's listed as one of the new men appointed by the apostles to serve in a new office within the local assembly at Jerusalem, presumably as what would later be called deacons. 
He fully embraced his new position. He preached Jesus as the Messiah to the point that he had become an irritant to the Jewish leadership wanting to quash the Messianic message of Jesus. Stephen, beginning in Acts chapter 6, verse 8, is preaching his farewell message to the council, also known as the Sanhedrin. And there in his audience is the high priest. In these verses, Stephen seeks to show the Jewishness of Christianity as the next step in a progression that began with Abraham. Stephen's message here is rich with name-dropping Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and his sons, along with Joseph, Moses, Joshua, David, and Solomon. Incidentally, in verse 45, Jesus there is a Greek transliteration for the Hebrew name Joshua. The reference in this verse speaks of Joshua, the successor of Moses. Stephen gives a Jewish history lesson with an indirect reference to Christ in verse 37, when he says, This is that Moses which said unto the children of Israel, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren, like unto me, him shall ye hear. Now, while this may not seem so obvious to us, it would have been to the Jewish audience that Stephen was preaching to. This is clearly a Messianic reference found in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 to 22, and it was recognized by Jews in that day to be exactly that. I've included an article in the written notes of BibleTrack.org for today entitled, Moses Prophesied the Messiah. You can also find that under the topic section of BibleTrack.org. Now, Stephen's Jewish history lesson here has a point. He weaves into this lesson a pattern of Jewish rejection toward those over the centuries who had been sent for their deliverance, and that message begins in verse 9. Now, note the following instances of Jewish rejection in Stephen's message. He points out the rejection of Joseph by his brothers in verse 9, the rejection of Moses before his exile from Egypt in verse 27, rejection of Moses by Israel's elders before the Exodus in verse 35, the rejection of Moses after the Exodus in verse 39, the rejection of Moses' leadership on the occasion of the worship of the golden calf in verse 41, and the rejection of God's prophet Amos as he quotes there Amos chapter 5, verses 25 to 27. He does so in verses 42 to 43. So as Stephen draws this message to a close, he quotes Isaiah chapter 66, verses 1 and 2. He does so in verses 48 and 49. That's to make his point that God does not need the temple made with human hands. God's own hands made everything, as he declares this fact in verse 50. Here's where Stephen makes his transition from a history lesson to application with his recount of the sordid history of rejection after rejection after rejection. Stephen now feels it's time to tie it all together in Jesus Christ. So, do we go for tact here, or do we just go ahead and proclaim that this Jewish audience killed the Messiah? Well, Stephen just isn't in a tactful mood this day. So, let's continue reading when Stephen gets to the heart of his message in verse 51. Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised and hardened ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost, as your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one, of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the disposition of angels, and have not kept it. Well, forget tact. 
Stephen pulls no punches at the invitation of this message. He tells them in verse 51, Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised and hardened ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. As your fathers did, so do ye. He goes on to say in verse 52, Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one, being Jesus, of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers. Well, that's all it took. Stephen has just accused these prestigious Jewish leaders serving on the Sanhedrin of betraying and murdering the God-sent Messiah. The pattern of rejection continues. Then in verse 54, we see what happens after they heard this message. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing on the right hand of God, and said, Behold, I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, and stopped their ears, and ran upon him with one accord, and cast him out of the city, and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the young man's feet, whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God, and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Well, when you don't want the truth, you don't want the truth. No question, these Jewish leaders did not want the truth. We see in verse 54 the intense emotion of anger as his audience gnashed means to grind their teeth at him. They stopped up their ears, verse 57, to keep from hearing any more of Stephen's message. Then they stoned him to death. So when an innocent man is being stoned to death by an angry mob, what should be his last words? Notice those of Stephen in verse 60. It says, And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Those words had to have given those executioners nightmares for years following this cruel act of mob violence. That brings us to the story that begins with Saul in Acts chapter 8. And we already mentioned just now as the one holding the cloaks of those doing the stoning of Stephen. But now we go into the 8th chapter where we start hearing about this man Saul. Saul was a bad man. Verse 1. And Saul was consenting unto his death, and at that time there was a great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem. They were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committed them to prison. Well, here's where we get our first look at Saul of Tarsus in these verses. He approved the execution of Stephen and he ravaged the church. Saul even went into the homes of believers and arrested them, presumably while they were having house church services. Paul, also known as in this passage Saul, would later testify to the Philippians about this in Philippians chapter 3, verse 6, when he says, Concerning zeal persecuting the church. No question, Saul was an enemy of the early church. 
But this didn't stop Philip, we find in chapter 8, beginning with verse 4. Therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with loud voice, came out of many that were possessed with them, and many taken with palsies, and that were lame, were healed. And there was great joy in that city. Now verse 4 is quite significant here. It says, Therefore they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. Why did those early Jerusalem believers leave their homes and go preach the gospel according to Christ's command in Acts chapter 1, verse 8? Well, it's persecution. Now think about that. A horrendous experience for these early believers provided the motivation they needed to take the gospel outside Jerusalem. Philip was another of the first seven men appointed in Acts chapter 6, verse 5. Well, he heads to Samaria to preach. By the way, Christ did mention Samaria as the next mission field in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. They loved him there. People there received Christ as Savior. But wait, the church at Jerusalem had never ministered to anyone except Jews up to this point. Salvation had been regarded up to this point as a Jewish thing, you see. So who are these Samaritans anyway? Well, the Jews separated from the Samaritans. Remember Jesus and the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4? So why the disdain for Samaritans by the Jews? Well, here's their history. After the death of Solomon, Israel split into what became known as the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom. The Southern Kingdom was committed to always having a descendant of David on their throne. The Northern Kingdom adopted a two-golden-calf worship right from the very beginning, and they never served God, all the way down to their fall in 721 B.C., the name Samaritans in 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 29, refers to the Israelite inhabitants of the northern kingdom. In subsequent history, it denotes people of mixed origin. This mixture consisted of the people brought by the conqueror from Babylon and elsewhere to take the places of the expatriated Israelites and those who were left in the land in 721 B.C. when the northern kingdom fell to the Assyrians. So they were a product of Gentile intermarriage. These Samaritans were considered half-breed Jews, and they were avoided by observant Jews in those days. Well, now that these Samaritans have gotten saved, we need to call in some experts to evaluate this situation, and that's what we do beginning in verse 9. But there was a certain man called Simon, which before time in the same city used sorcery and bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that himself was some great one, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And to him they had regard, because that of a long time he had bewitched them with sorceries. But when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Then Simon himself believed also. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. Now when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John, who, when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. 
for as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then laid they their hands on them, and they received the Holy Ghost. And when Simon saw that through laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me also this power, that on whomsoever I lay hands, he may receive the Holy Ghost. But Peter said unto him, Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. Thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent therefore of this thy wickedness, and pray God, if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. For I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Then answered Simon and said, Pray ye to the Lord for me, that none of these things which ye have spoken come upon me. And they, when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, returned to Jerusalem and preached the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. So what's this about some Samaritans getting saved? Well, this has got to be investigated by a representative from the home office in Jerusalem. Who are we going to send? Well, we're going to send Peter. When Peter shows up to validate Philip's ministry to the Samaritans and do a little preaching himself, he meets Simon. Simon's a magician. Oh, and he's simply amazed that when Peter lays hands on people, they receive the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit. Simon gets saved also, and he wants to learn this magic trick. Incidentally... There must have been an accompanying miracle like the threefold miracle of Acts chapter 2, you know, with the wind, the cloven tongues of fire, along with the speaking in tongues. Even though we aren't told what the visible signs on this occasion were, I'm convinced it was this threefold miracle of Acts chapter 2. Otherwise, what did Simon the magician see that amused him? He even offers to buy the magic trick himself. He wants to become the first gospel magician. Hey, Simon, this isn't magic. This is God. Now, let's give a little perspective to this event. Earlier, the day of Pentecost experience in Acts chapter 2 had included an all-Jewish audience. But now we're going to include these much-despised Samaritans in our newly formed church. Well, the Holy Spirit affirms, yes, we are. And Peter's the moderator, just as he was on the day of Pentecost. Now, I happen to think that this has something to do with Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. If you want a full perspective, you have to understand uh, this in the context of Peter's role on the day of Pentecost. He was the messenger on that occasion as well when the Holy Spirit was introduced to the Jews there in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2. By inducting first the Jews and now the Samaritans into the newly formed church, could it be that Peter's exercising some sort of authority given to him by Jesus Christ on that day in Matthew chapter 16? It certainly appears that the church leadership in Jerusalem was looking to Peter for the validation of this Samaritan event. Now, I believe that we're seeing Peter use his Matthew 16 keys here to open door number two, that's the Samaritan door, just as he had used them to open door number one, the Jewish door in Acts chapter two. Hmm, is there a door number three? If you use Acts chapter one, verse eight as the template, Jews, Samaritans, and then finally uttermost part of the earth, there must be another door somewhere to open. And as a matter of fact, 
we're going to see that third door as we get over to Acts chapter 10, and that's when the Gentiles are also invited into the church. And then we continue with the story of Philip in verse 26 when Philip comes across an influential Ethiopian. Verse 26, And the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south into the way that goeth down from Jerusalem into Gaza, which is desert. And he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, an eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure and had come to Jerusalem for to worship was returning, and sitting in his chariot read Isaiah the prophet. Then the Spirit said unto Philip, Go near, and join thyself to this chariot. And Philip ran thither to him, and heard him read the prophet Isaiah, and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? And he said, How can I, except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. The place of the scripture which he read was this, He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, And like a lamb dumb before his shearer, so opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. And who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this, of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. And as they went on their way, they came into a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water, what doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And then when they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord called away Philip, that the eunuch saw him no more, And he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Azotus, and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. Well, Philip, while out looking for more evangelism opportunities, comes across this Ethiopian eunuch. He's a man who occupied a leading position as treasurer at the court of Candace, who was queen of the Ethiopians. The man is reading at the time from Isaiah chapters 52 and 53, And he's troubled with his lack of understanding. These are messianic prophecies, and the Ethiopian eunuch just isn't getting it. He realizes there's more than meets the eye here, but he could use a little spiritual insight. Specifically, he wants to know if the one suffering in Isaiah's prophecy is Isaiah, or is it someone else? Enter Philip. After an explanation of the passage demonstrating that it refers to Jesus, the suffering Messiah, the Ethiopian wants to be baptized. Philip explains that baptism follows a profession of faith in Jesus Christ in verse 37. Well, the Ethiopian, he's all over that. The baptism takes place right there and then. If you'd like to have more information regarding Christian baptism, then look at my written notes on Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletribe.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Faith Bible Church, Paul Walker.